0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, it's Anna. Our episode this week deals with suicide, and we also discuss an attempt. If you or someone you love is at risk of harming themselves, or if you just need some help with mental health, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Or, as you'll hear about in this episode, as of July 16th, you can just dial 988. I imagine driving a semi, that's a lot of time with your own thoughts.
2: Yeah, and sometimes it's rewarding, sometimes it's not. It's just thought after thought after thought It's not healthy. Um, and almost every song on the radio, I can twist where it's a the, the negative song. It's
1: just not good. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Jason Whitmire is 37 a husband and father of two little boys, who lives in Casper, Wyoming. Until recently, he made money driving a truck.
2: Most of their day trips, but they're long days, you know. asleep when I leave, and then the kids are asleep when I get home.
1: Jason is a suicide attempt survivor, and is active in a local suicide prevention group. Wyoming had the highest rate of suicide per capita in the U.S. in 2020. It's been one of the top states every year since 1990 for most of Jason's life. Jason's mental health struggles started in his mid 20s. He'd make a small mistake or feel guilty about something, and then couldn't shake it. And he would end up in a very dark place.
2: They put me on a antidepressant and didn't work.
1: Then a few months later, he was heading back from work. This was in 2013.
2: I was you know, very suicidal, had a plan. I was driving. I was about 45 minutes away from Casper. I was coming back. And then all of a sudden, something, something clicked. Uh, I started calling people, say, hey, I'm not safe. It was almost as, if, as soon as the front tires hit the interstate from the on-ramp, everything changed.
1: Who did you call?
2: It was probably my wife, is who I called first. And then... Then I think an ex called my boss because I was in a company truck at the time, pickup, and called him. And then after that, the word had gotten around fast enough that people were calling me. And you know, as soon as somebody called that I knew closely, and loved dearly, I would just start crying. And So I had to tell people to stop calling me so I could see the road.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, what? What was what felt important? that you heard from from somebody on the other side of the phone? What do you remember?
2: Uh, well, there was a lot of are you okays and I love you. <laughs> that's pretty much what I heard during the phone conversation. Um, and then drive safe because I was 45 minutes away. But that's what it was, is a lot of emphasis on me. Making sure that I was okay. It was none of like anybody trying to ask questions about how you could do this, or why would you do this, or it was all everything was positive reinforcement towards me.
1: Jason knew who to reach out to, but not everyone does. And for people who need support, there's a new number to call nine eight eight. This simple three-digit number goes into effect nationwide on July 16th. And along with this new number, local call centers are gearing up for more calls. So when you're in crisis, you reach someone who knows the community you're a part of.
3: It just became very clear that if we wanted to bring down our, the rate of suicide in Wyoming, we had to start addressing it with Wyoming people.
1: This is Karen Sylvester. She's worked in suicide prevention for a long time, 25 years. She's also raised eight children in Wyoming, and she's now the Director of Training and Fundraising for the Wyoming Lifeline, one of two new suicide hotlines that got up and running in 2020 in the state.
3: You know, you're supposed to be tough and strong and brave and all the things that people don't associate with seeking mental health services. We're very rural Everybody knows your business. And so when it comes to somebody struggling, the last place that they want to have their car parked is outside the mental health office so that everybody in town can whisper or try to decide what they think is going on with so-and-so, I saw their car. That's why
1: Karen says it's important that the person at the other end of the line answering the call gets the local community and how to suggest where to find help.
3: Well, you know what? You can drive 50 miles to another town and here's where their office is and here's their phone number. Most people do not want resources in Wyoming in their own town.
1: When you think about the demographics, who do, who
3: do you picture calling in? Oh, wow. Um, there isn't just one face. We have young people that in Wyoming feel, um, isolated for various reasons. We have a whole a demographic of farmers and ranchers um, and in a culture all their own that struggle with suicide as a group. Um, I, I see the faces of, face of elderly people who think that this is, they don't want to be a burden to their family and that their only way out is to die by suicide.
1: The impact of suicide can be felt throughout Wyoming, across demographics. In one survey, queer young people reported seriously considering suicide at a rate three times higher than straight youth. According to the most recent data from 2020, most deaths by suicide in Wyoming were white men, 25 and older. People like Jason and Casper. Had you ever thought about calling a a suicide crisis hotline? Uh, No. After his first suicidal crisis in his truck in 2013, Jason was institutionalized. He regularly saw a therapist and a psychiatrist after that, and he thought things might be stabilizing. He told his family and close friends what he would need if he was again in crisis.
2: I'd already built my team up so much that I trusted, that knew how to help me and knew what to do to get me to a safer place, both physically and mentally and all that.
1: The suicidal thoughts didn't go away, though. They came and went like a roller coaster. And in 2017, they intensified. One afternoon, Jason was home alone. He had a plan. So he called his doctors.
2: I was able to reach a receptionist, and they they told me that they didn't have an appointment or couldn't squeeze me in.
1: The despair took over. He texted his friends and family to say goodbye and began to attempt suicide. Moments later, his phone started to light up with replies. When he closed his eyes and tried to let go, he couldn't get those messages out of his mind.
2: Not until during the attempt, that I had a moment of clarity to stop.
1: Uh-huh. Is that why you think you survived? That you had a, that something caused you to pause? Oh,
2: yeah, that's definitely um, why I'm still here.
1: Do you have the suicide, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline phone number in your phone now?
2: <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I should, but I don't know.
1: What, what, what have you heard about people's experiences when they have tried to dial a hotline and, and seek help in Wyoming?
2: Yeah. Well, prior to the local hotline, um, I heard some people say, they're on home for up to 20 minutes. Um, and when you're in a crisis situation, 20 minutes is you know, an eternity, you know? Yeah. Um, but then once they got to the local hotlines, um, the people that, have, that I have heard or talked about Talk to, called in. Say it's much better. Um, then get right in. There's not near as long as a wait.
1: The two suicide hotlines in Wyoming split the week. The call center in Casper, where Jason lives, answers calls in the evening through the middle of the night. Then the calls are routed to Grable a small town in the northern part of Wyoming. It's less than two square miles in area, with a population of 1,600.
0: No call goes unanswered. We do not have the, our phone system
1: cannot return a busy signal. Ralph Nieder-Westerman runs that call center, the Wyoming Lifeline. He grew up in Mississippi and spent most of his adult life in San Francisco, but has come to love Wyoming, even its rugged weather as he showed me when I met him at the front door of the call center in Grable.
0: There was a huge gust of wind, and this door had not been completely closed. It sheared the door off, and the door landed right here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's when you can tell someone's new to Wyoming. They don't know that they can't just, like, swing open a door, that yeah, the wind right. might take it. On the day we met, he was wearing bright red Nike Air Force Ones and his long hair in a ponytail. Ralph's been coming to the state since 2015. When I first talked to him on Zoom, he was out of town, taking care of his husband Jeff's parents.
0: I think it's important that as a gay couple, that we're out and proud in Wyoming, in a small town like Grable.
1: hmm How long have you and Jeff been together?
0: 40 years.
1: Whoa. Hey, <laughs> how old were you when you met? 2. <laughs> Coming up, I talk with Ralph about preparing for the rollout of 988 and whether they're ready.
0: The lack of resources is is a frustration to everybody who does this work.
1: I'm guest hosting the NPR show, It's Been a Minute, and we're talking about the launch of 988 over on that show, too, this week. I spoke with Hannah Wesolowski to learn more about how this launch is going nationally. Hannah is the Chief Advocacy Officer for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and I asked how the trained crisis counselors who answer 988 calls are different from the people who answer 911. The call is the intervention for 9 mm. For about 80 to 98 percent of calls, they can be de-escalated over the phone. So the immediate crisis can be resolved over the phone. And that can reduce the need for in-person response for many of these crisis situations. And she told me those crisis situations don't all have to be about the risk of suicide. This system is designed to answer calls from anyone experiencing any kind of mental health crisis. You know, when I think about who might use it, um, I can think about parents who are worried about their teenage uh, child who's pulled away and has become isolated, or, you know, a mother who recently gave birth who is really struggling. Um, It could be a, a person who's experiencing some paranoia and doesn't know what is happening and needs help. You know, anyone who's struggling with what's going on in the world and is feeling intense emotional distress. So Hannah and her colleagues in the mental health community are expecting and hoping for a lot more calls. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Hannah over in the It's Been a Minute podcast feed on Friday. She was wonderful to talk to, really knowledgeable about this new policy, and also all that still needs to be done to fix our mental health care system. I recommend listening. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When I met Ralph Nieder-Westerman in Grable, Wyoming, he was just back from Casper Pride. He took a bunch of postcards advertising the lifeline. This card says, it takes courage to open up and heal. I call this one, hunky
0: cowboy. And this one is just, farmer.
1: Yeah. (laughs) For most of his working life, Ralph worked for an airline. His husband runs a marketing firm, which is how they got into the call center business to begin with. Ralph gave me a tour of the center, which was quiet, now that everyone at the Lifeline is mostly working remotely. Here's the break room. The break room. I'm going to check the fridge is there anything in, in here? In there. Oh, it's totally all it has is ketchup and mayo and mustard. Right? We
0: emptied it out because Oh, it's an empty. We, we have turned it off.
1: <laughs> it's an empty office. It's empty, but they've been busy. The Lifeline only just expanded their hours to cover 7 days a week in March in anticipation of the launch of 988. Have you felt a sense of an uptick? I'll show you. I'll show you the graph. Why
0: is it so small? Because I have a much bigger screen at home. So here we are. Um, So this shows you what's been going on. We went in March is when we went uh, to seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day. So the spike... January and February, we had 50, 55 calls. 82 calls in March, a dip in April. We had 97 calls in the month of May. Through yesterday, we've had 47.
1: Then in June, they got the most calls ever, more than double their monthly numbers from the winter.
0: Uh, 988 will go into effect on July 16th, come hell or high water. It doesn't matter if you're ready or if you're not. I was reading an article, excuse me, it was a report from the RAND Corporation that said no state is ready.
1: Can it talk me through, when you're answering calls, mm-hmm. what, what is the experience of the caller, and then when do they connect with you, and what do you see? If a call comes
0: in, there'll be a little flag here. I will click, you know, pick up the phone, and then I will hear, press one to accept this lifeline call we press one and then we're connected at that moment this contact form will pop up on their second screen i see what happens is as the person is calling talking to the caller you know you start making some some assumptions and you start filling out why why did you call um
1: is there a question here about access to firearms on this survey when a caller calls in It doesn't ask
0: specifically, but do you have any methods? Uh, This is where we would put in a note saying has has access to a gun. It's Wyoming. Everybody has access to Mm -hmm. a gun. And then here we have the suicide risk assessment section.
1: And then There's this, this little the dial on the side of the screen that guides what the Lifeline moves. staff do next. Mm-hmm.
0: When it gets to the red, then we're really in, we have somebody who is at at immediate risk. And then, all hands on deck, if we have enough information, we will then call what we'll call emergency services uh-huh. uh, and and get somebody there right away. The last thing that we want to do is... Call nine one one. I have been on a call with Casper police, and this was a third party caller uh, who was worried about his friend, and I was on the line the entire time. And I would just say that the way this police officer in Casper handled the situation was was amazing. I wish everybody would. Mm -hmm. I've also had some other in smaller towns where the response from 911 has been, um, oh, we know exactly who it is. She does this all the time.
1: I see. Do you have a memory of sitting right here, looking at these two screens and having a phone call with somebody that, um, that really sticks out to you where you were really glad that you here and Grable were the one answering the phone?
0: There was a, I spoke to a woman who said, many times they begin, I'm not suicidal, but, and I listened and she said, you're not going to understand what it's like. I have all of these things going on in my life and you don't know what it's like to live in a small town. And I said, I live in Graypole. You could hear the sigh. You could hear the sense of relief. You know exactly what this is like. I live in Cody. And I was tempted to say, and that's the big city I go to to go shopping.
1: Calls get personal at the Wyoming Lifeline for those who dial in and for the people picking up the phone. Adam Smith does that full-time for the Lifeline. He grew up in town.
4: I actually left uh, Grable the day after I graduated, um, I really didn't like it here.
1: But he moved back to take care of his dad, who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and struggled with his mental health.
4: Then I'd get a call from my mom like, OK, you got to come home. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not doing well. And that I would hop on a plane immediately and come home. Hmm. But um, yeah, and that's that's kind of what brought me back about four years ago, too.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And I just decided to stay.
1: And, and was it your sense, and your father's sense, um, that he got adequate care, there was good care for him as somebody who was struggling with Actually,
4: no, he didn't. Um, he had to go to three different, uh, for better words, mental hospitals before he got the treatment he needed. And the treatment he got was in Denver, Colorado.
1: I see. He had that to leave the state.
4: Him. Yes, he did.
1: Uh-huh. So you're like in your... Uh, sort of late 30s coming Mm -hmm. up on your late 30s when you move home um, what did you think you were going to do for work when you came home
4: (laughs) that's a really good question Um, I had no idea because there's ranching jobs there's there's the railroad uh, and then there's like bartending jobs I guess I might have landed one of those or cooking in a restaurant something like that And then um, I found a IT position. And then one day Ralph came in and I heard him kind of, I was getting a cup of coffee, I think, or something. And they were talking about the lifeline. And I was like, what's this all about? And I was like, is there any openings? And Ralph was like, actually, we're looking for another person.
1: On a typical, we're talking in February, on a typical day, How many calls would you get where you, would you say where you, where you are concerned that, that the person who's calling in might harm themselves?
4: Um, It varies. It really does vary. Uh, There can be sometimes three calls a day. Sometimes there can be none. Um, I think probably one of the worst ones I had where I had to stay with the one person on the phone because uh we're waiting for dispatch to get there to help her hmm. and uh yeah some of them are hard calls for sure very hard calls cuz you feel at times like i don't know i do anyways like i betrayed the person's trust when that knock on the door comes and it's the police and uh you know they're so either deep in a psychosis or they're you know really intent on ending their life that they feel betrayed, but I think that them calling the lifeline is that a part of them still wants to live. Mm -hmm. So I try not to take that to heart too much, but it's kind of hard sometimes.
3: Yeah.
1: Have you ever struggled with mental illness yourself?
4: Uh, Yeah, I have. Um, I am bipolar. Um, And I told Ralph that when he (laughs) hired me, actually and we would we'd would kind of joke about it when i would work on uh, some days i'd come into the office and be like uh, well it's kind of one of those manic days ralph he'd <laughs> mm-hmm. just be like oh <laughs> okay and you know cuz i would have super high energy and making coffee and running around the you know doing things for people
1: what is it like for you when you have um a difficult, emotionally draining phone call, and then your colleagues are not nearby. You're you're handling it well by yourself.
4: For me, it's music. Really, is what helps me the most. Um, Elliot Smith. I don't know. Uh, Grateful Dead.
1: Something, Adam, about listening to Elliot Smith after a emotionally <laughs> taxing phone call. <laughs>
4: I find Elliot Smith's music actually really kind of, I don't find it depressing at all. Some of it can be, but, you know, some of it can be really upbeat too, I find. And beautiful. Just beautiful. And oh yeah, amazingly beautiful music.
1: If you call the Wyoming Lifeline and there aren't any local operators available, you're rolled over to a national call center. But Adam just got a little extra help when the Wyoming Lifeline hired one more person to answer calls locally, thanks to a small federal grant. And earlier this year, the legislature directed more than $2 million in COVID relief money to further increase suicide lifeline capacity in the state.
2: Usually within minutes, I could tell when I'm starting to have negative thoughts. Uh, Sometimes I've noticed it the moment it happens, so I've been
1: able to shut it down. Um, are you, does your, do your bosses know? Are you open about, about your mental health diagnosis at work among coworkers?
2: Uh, yeah. Actually, where I work now, um, for not much longer, because right, right now I'm, I'm driving a semi, and it's not you know, the best career, especially to have for a young family. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to get out of there. Um, I have a degree in geology, so that's been my ultimate goal. That's actually where I'm going to go, unfortunately. Fortunately, I can use my degree here in about two weeks. Just put in my notice.
1: He told me he'll be working as a production geologist at a uranium mine. Is that nearby, near near your home?
2: Uh, kind of. It's a two-hour drive, so I'm further away than I would have wanted, but it's in the industry that I want, so
1: I'll definitely take and give. That's awesome. Um, Will you come and go each day, do you think?
2: Uh, Yeah, there's a few that work out there from Casper already, and they all carpool every morning in a company vehicle.
1: Oh, that's nice. So you'll have some buddies on the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just have a few more questions for you, Jason. Um, One is, uh, do you have any firearms in your house?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm actually a hunter. Uh, My wife is too, which I know that sounds weird. That a person that's open and still has suicidal thoughts has firearms in the house. But yeah, we do. To me, that's how you go about having them in your house.
1: Have you like? Do you have a safety plan as far as the firearms in your house for when you don't feel healthy?
2: Uh, yeah, they're in a safe that's locked up that I don't have the code to, the key to. So,
1: oh, really? So
2: that's, that's about as safe as you can get.
1: <laughs> and, and how um, did you decide that you didn't get to know the code?
2: Uh, actually, when I first started all this, we didn't have a safe. And so it was based off of my wife trusting me to let her know that I wasn't safe to have firearms in the house. And that's not a safe plan at all. It's not a good plan. I have a, it's not. But it worked. But at the entire time, I was like, "We need to get it safe," and told my wife that you're the only one that's going to use the code. No code. You said that. Yeah, it was, it was all my idea. So I don't want to be able to have the code and and be able to get to the firearms now. Like, if she's at work and I'm at the off when gonna go shoot guns with my buddies, that she she will let me have the code. But as soon as she gets home, she changes it. I see. So, so then there's, I don't know the code for more than a few hours.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you feel comfortable? Like, will you go out hunting by yourself?
2: Now I do, yeah. But at first, after my... Um, First time being institutionalized in 2013, uh, I was terrified to be alone anywhere. In the house, driving, hunting—that I that was because I didn't know what I would do. I couldn't trust myself. But now, I—I'm comfortable with it. I've, I've done it a few times since then. Even after my attempt, it's, it's almost. Being out there, hiking around, looking for wildlife, whatever it is, it almost seems impossible at times to be suicidal for me. It's kind of like it doesn't even, doesn't even come up.
1: That's Jason Whitmire in Casper, Wyoming. Again, if you are struggling with your mental health, please reach out. You can call 988. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Lily Clark, along with Katie Bishop, Julia Furlan, and Caitlin Pierce. The rest of our team is Zoe Azoulay, Affie Duke, Emily Boteen, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to Carol Bell and Savannah Collins for their help on this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at annasalepics. That's P-I-C-S. The show is at DeathSexMoney on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Jerry Lim in Whitestone, New York, for being a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Jerry and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.